Even though it didn't find its audience until well after 1982, John Carpenter's The Thing is considered one of the scariest and most interesting blends of science fiction and horror ever. Exploring themes of isolation and paranoia, this adaptation of a 1950s B-movie about the discovery of alien life in Antarctica still rocks. On today's episode, Adrian and I dig deep under the ice as we discuss The Thing's incredible cast, including Kurt Russell, Keith David, and Wilford Brimley, Carpenter's unmistakable style showcased in every frame of this film, as well as the literally out-of-this-world special effects supplied by Rob Bottin and Stan Winston. We also debate where the thing falls in the official Carpenter film canon. I'm Swain Hunt. This, along with our Tron episode and others to come, are part of a fun series we're doing focused on the science fiction of our youth, as our friend Thomas Perkins might say. Movies from the 1970s and 80s that we grew up loving. So please enjoy this podcast review as Adrian and I try to determine who's human and who ain't because nobody trusts anybody anymore in our discussion of John Carpenter's sci-fi horror classic, The Thing. thinking about you know ideas for shows you know what I'm saying and one of the ideas that came up was this is the 40th anniversary for John Carpenter's The Thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> which was a dope opening man and you know he did that they yeah. did that with trash bags yo and like a blowtorch or something they made a stencil out of yeah. the, the title and they just put like a trash bag over mm-hmm. it and then blowtorched it. And I was like, see, that's yeah. the type of thing you can't get with CGI nowadays. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Man. But anyway, like I said, like I was mentioning, you know, we were thinking about, you know, upcoming shows and definitely the, 40 anniver- the 40th anniversary of The Thing, man. 
you know, we definitely felt that that would be something that we would have to, you know, um, bring up on the mic and um, celebrate and chop, chop it up about because it's one of those seminal movies for a generation, man. And it and mm -hmm. it's always seemed like it never get its just due. Almost in a sense like Carpenter in a way, you know, dually like Carpenter, you know, e even though to me, it's not my favorite of Carpenter's, it's not my favorite of Carpenter's films, but to me, it definitely mm -hmm. is his best, you know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. so it's like, I definitely want to give recognition to the thing, you know, and also to Carpenter as well, because I do think even to this day, even though, you know, everyone, you know, really, you know, talks about how, how much they love the thing and, oh man, it's, it's one of those seminal you know, horror films, body horror films, what have you, you know, I, I do still mm -hmm. think to some degree it doesn't get a lot of the love that it that it really should. You know what I'm saying? Well, let me ask you this, because let, let's start with you, right. sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see. OK. <laughs> no, but. What is your favorite and, and how do you differ? Like, what, do, what? how do you differ between that being the best mm -hmm. versus the one that is your favorite? And which one is your favorite? Okay, my favorite, uh, and it's a toss up, but at this stage of my life, my favorite would have to be Escape from New York. Um, it okay, that's what, I, that's what I figured. That's what I figured. Yeah, okay. yeah. And they're perpetually gone between Escape from New York and Halloween. Like, those two are at the tippy top for me. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But. How do I differentiate, you know, between my favorite being Escape and the thing being his best is, and, and check it, both of them star Kurt Russell, you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. even with his performance in the thing, it's a bit more nuanced and just a, a, a shade more deeper than, you know, Snake Plissken, who is kind of one note, you know, but I, I like that for what it is in Escape, but here in the thing... Russell as McCready, like, man, just, ah, it's, man, he gives such a good performance. Like, he goes from, like, this, not quite happy-go-lucky, but, you know, he's just there, you know what I'm saying? We just here trying right, to do whatever right. into it shrinks into this paranoia. And when he finally comes near the end, he looks like one of those, um, like, um, old-time 49ers, like one of those mountaineers. You know, who's come down mm -hmm. from the mountain and it's like, I don't care what happens. Nobody's going to get in my way. That type of thing. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, like he's just seen the other side, you know? And yeah, the other reason why I say it's the best, too, is I'm going to make another comparison here. And you, you, you feel free to castigate me for it. I don't care, but it's all good. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm getting ready. Go ahead. <laughs> Damn, yo. <laughs> 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 the, the other comparison I'm going to make here is that the thing is almost, to me, just probably exclusively to me, like Tarantino's Jackie Brown. And as desperate as those two comparisons are, here's, here's, Damn. here's what I say. Jackie Brown was made at a time where Tarantino, he, would, he had already made Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, obviously. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. people knew him for that kind of style of scripting and filmmaking. You know, they kind of knew his voice. And Jackie Brown mm -hmm. represented him, um, his craft finally catching up to, or, or rather, 
his um, his filmmaking catching up to the craft of what he was doing. It represented a new level for him where it wasn't just this, you know, snappy patter amongst gangsters and crazy pop culture references and stuff like that. It was more like, all right, mm -hmm. he's really found himself in terms of pushing the boundary of the type of filmmaker he is and his craft has finally coalesced into that. That's what I feel with John Carpenter and The Thing. It's like we knew his voice as, all right, he's a genre filmmaker. He does these type of very entertaining, you know, dark type of movies. But it's like here in The Thing, it kept, his craft finally catches up to elevate his filmmaking to another degree. And everything about The Thing is just ah, spot on. It's like now he has enough budget to do like these great shots. I mean, on location, you know? So the setting is perfect. Mm -hmm. The cinematography is fantastic. Dean Cundy steps up, you know? Like some of those shots are like, wow, holy smokes. Mm -hmm. God, this is, this is mm -hmm. amazing. This looks amazing. And the, the, the storytelling too is, is great. And, and although it's borrowed from the first version of the thing, the thing from another world, another one of my absolute favorites, mm -hmm. you can tell mm -hmm. that Carpenter is so comfortable with the ensemble cast and everyone kind of plays a part. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. it's just a great presentation. The effects are on point. The storytelling is on point. So that's why I made the comparison, you know, that this is like, in a way, his Jackie Brown. It's a it's him stepping up to another level in his craft from the type of movies that he did before. And now people know that, OK, here's a new standard that we should hold this filmmaker at, you know, being John Carpenter. OK, OK, I see the comparison you're making, and I think to some extent I've made similar comparisons in the past when I will say that something that came before someone else's uh, really best known work is probably uh, them at their grittiest and at their hungriest mm -hmm. and at their, you know, got to have it is -ness. <laughs> but, yeah. but they reach a point where budget and production and ideas and talent and, you know, put your ass in it and, and really get it done. All of that kind of meets together. So the comparison I always make is, is off the wall and thrill. Right. Yes. You know, thrillers where you bring in all of these incredible songs. You know, everybody is is working almost as as, as one. Quincy Jones, mm. the songwriters, the musicians, Mike. You know, uh, songs that were added at the last minute end, end up becoming the best songs, and it's his most popular. But I like Off the Wall and the songs on Off the Wall better. But to go back to your Jackie Brown comparison with Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. I really don't like Jackie Brown at all. I think to me that is the low point of his of his film career. I think Reservoir Dogs is superior. I think Pulp Fiction is infinitely more superior. I like I like uh, Inglorious Bastards better than I like Jackie Brown. Sure, okay. I like Jack. I like Django better than I like Jackie Brown. I did not like Hateful Eight. Mm, so mm. I I don't know where I am as far as you know Tarantino goes from you know from but. You know, moving forward, because I, I think, well... Uh, what about Kill Bill? What about the Kill Bill movies? 
Kill Bill was entertaining, but it wasn't all that. Mm, that second one was mm, volumes one and two. Yeah, it's entertaining for me, but it just wasn't all that. You know, got you. Um, and even um, uh, the last film that he put oh, out, Once Upon uh, a Time. Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's fine, but I didn't love it. Mm, mm. I didn't love it, and I think probably part of the problem for me with Jackie Brown, we're digressing here on, on, on and, and not giving it's uh, all good. Come uh, on. Uh, the thing, the thing it shines. Yeah, it's coming, but go but ahead. The thing about about Jackie Brown that I think was missing was the fact that he didn't come up with the story. It was based on an Elmore Elmore Leonard story, mm. uh, and it wasn't his his. It, the kernels of the story were not him. It was him adapting something. And for me, he's almost like Prince, where he has to do original material all the time. Stop with the remakes. Stop with the you want to do Star Trek your way. Damn all that. Do Quentin Tarantino shit until you're tired of doing it and then stop. Well, now, see, to your comparison, you know, that's the same thing here with the thing. I mean, John Carpenter, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this wasn't it was him doing his his version of a remake, you know, of the, the previous one. Right. Exactly. You know exactly. Saying? Yeah. So that might be an, another reason too, you know, why it feels like maybe perhaps to me a departure for him is that it doesn't have those mm -hmm. seminal carpenter isms that I knew from his previous films. And in a sense, they kind of helped, you know, with differentiating it, you know, with with the thing, you know, much like Tarantino. There were Tarantino isms in Jackie Brown, but not as much because he was, you know, um, re making this based on previously previous material. You know what I'm saying? Um, right. But right. yeah. So, so, so that, that, that's, that's where I stand with it. But I think, yeah, for me too, as well, the thing and Halloween is my favorite John Carpenter movie. Mm, mm. Like it just never, it never moves. But the thing is number two and then they live is number three okay. for yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you start getting into like the fog and, um, um, you know, and, and other things, you know, after that, but that to me is, you know, um, it is the number two movie for me. And I think, um, like you said, you know, the fact that he had a budget, it was a $15 million budget, mm. you know, he and he and Dean Cundy could really do their thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, the other thing that sets this movie and makes it different from Halloween and makes it different from escape from New York is this carpenter didn't do the score. Ennio Marconi did the score and very effective. So the score has, yeah, very effectively, but it is different. It doesn't have any of the, the, the droning kind of dark sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and beats and, and, and the, and the kind of uh twisted, you know, uh, uh, terrifying piano riffs that, you know, that he would do in the past. None of that exists in this. So it is more traditional in the, uh, in that sense of him having, you know, somebody who scores it and they're hiring a string quartet and, you know, they've got, you know, they've got all the bells and whistles uh, of a traditional Hollywood movie. Um, but I think the other thing, too, is, is, you know, they started out wanting like a couple hundred thousand dollars for the special effects and ended up spending, I think, seven hundred fifty thousand or a million uh, yeah. on the special effects. And it shows. That's what I was going to say. It's all it's, on screen. It shows. Yeah, it's all on screen where you just like and even though, you know, some of that stuff you you can tell, I mean, they just shot like two or three seconds of it four or five seconds of it and snipped it together, you know, to make it all look like one seamless, you know, uh, transformation or situation or, you know, someone being, you know, whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but, but it worked, you know, it really, really works. And so, 
Um, for anyone who's never seen this movie, it was re released the summer of 1982, which is a strange time to release a movie set in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> in, in, the in the middle of the summer. But it's, it's, it's about a research team in Antarctica that discovers an alien life form that crash landed on Earth probably 100,000 years ago, they, they estimate. And one of the creatures in the ship, uh, you know, crawls out of it and, and, and is frozen in the ice. And, and, and the creature comes out of the ice and thaws and, and comes back to life and begins imitating other life forms like humans and dogs. And then the team has to kind of figure out who's human and who's an alien yes. assimilation in order to survive. Yes. Um, that's, that's the simplest version of it. And it is, like Adrian said, it's a remake of a, uh, of a film from 1951 called The Thing from Another World. Yes, one of my favorites. And, you know, it's funny how... Yeah. I, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I saw that too when I was a kid. I remember watching it and, uh, you know, the whole thing of, because the movie is, you know, it's a 1951, yeah. you know, B science fiction movie. You know, I'm sure everybody on there was kind of like, you know, turning their head a little bit. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm in this movie I did uh, about a creature from, you know, from another world or whatever. But, um, but some of those shots, like the shot of the creature on fire jumping through the oh, through yeah. the, the, the door into the snow. Yes. Oh my God, yo. And there and, and the other shot of like when they first get ready to confront the creature, right? And everybody has their guns ready mm -hmm. and they're going to this closed door. And they're like, everybody ready? Yeah. They open the door and the creature's like right there, like, and oh shit. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yo. Yes. Yes. And, you know, the thing is, no pun intended, but the thing is, uh, <laughs> we're probably going to do that a lot yeah. over the next hour. Uh, the original film from 1951 was really more like Frankenstein as an alien, kind of. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. you, know, in, you know, in its presentation. And Carpenter's uh, remake in 82 which Adrian pointed out early uh, a minute ago is really like body horror. Yes. It's, you know, human being, it's not like, Oh, shapeshifter and you just kind of blah, 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 and you just become something else. Right. I mean, you see the body and the bones and the veins and the muscles and tissue splitting. And I mean, it, it, it is a all of the transformations of the creatures creature are freaky, like super freaky. Yes. Yes. And the thing you have to give the most credit to for that is, um, uh, to Rob Bottin, the special effects supervisor, mm -hmm. who uh, legendarily, after like the very early 90s, kind of just disappeared off the scene. Yeah. Like yeah, nobody gone. knows where he is. <laughs> like, yes, literally like into thin air almost. And he hasn't wanted to be found yeah. or anything. But if you look on the special edition um, DVD of the thing, they have an interview. He's on the commentary. Like, he's on the featurette yeah. and everything, which is a treat. Because mm -hmm. to see the guy, it's like, oh, man, this is, man, you, you know, you, you're getting a treat hearing it in his own words. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. the other, uh, to a smaller degree, you also have to credit some of that to um, the artist Mike Plug as well. You know? And um, Botine was a big comic book fan. And he said when they hired uh -huh. Mike Plug. He got excited because, oh, man, I know Mike Plug because Mike Plug, he had actually done stuff for Marvel Comics, like The Thing. And he had actually done like a Frankenstein book, um, like a Frankenstein comic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
And the beast. That's that that beast origin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was familiar mm-hmm. with drawing like weird creatures and goop and all of that stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? So those two together, but primarily Botine with the effects, man, it's just something else. And you know, <sighs> stuff like that really makes a case for practical effects and how even the best CGI could never, ever replicate some of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Even though they're using like mm-hmm. cornstarch and red food coloring and eggs and all this stuff, gelatin or whatever, mm-hmm. it's all in the way that you put it together and make the presentation. Like, I'm convinced. You remember that part where uh, Wilfred Brimley is doing the autopsy on the alien, and he, yeah. it, and yeah. I think it was real on his part. He's up there like, oh God, oh, oh as he, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, no, oh. He was just like, he was like, oh, yeah, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is worse than diabetes. No. <laughs> you, no, you're, you're exactly right, and I think, um, uh, as it relates to CGI versus practical effects, um. The human eye up until the point where CGI started to really take over, we were used to seeing people shoot either on a set, Mm -hmm. but they're in a 3D environment. They're in a live 3D environment or on location and they're in a live 3D environment. Or if they're reaching for something, they're touching something, it's real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It may not be an alien, of course, or it may not be a monster or it may not be, you know, uh, a cosmic gem from the other side of the galaxy, but... It is it is something real. I mean, for the for for the most part, you yeah. know, eighty to ninety percent of it was something real. So everything is, you know, our eye is picking up all of that grounding and all of that, you know, terrestrial special effects. And so now, when we see things that are completely CGI, mm-hmm. it stands out to us and it strikes us. Now, my daughter, your daughters, you know, kids who are under the age of twenty, are going to be less connected to that and less. Um, judgmental of that as what they want from their their live action films. You know, they're going to be like, eh, I mean, yeah, you should draw it in the computer, right? Yeah. You know, that's that's what looks right to them, and everything else kind of looks older or maybe a little less so. But at the same time, I think probably some of the more successful. I don't have any examples I can think of off the top of my head, mm. but some of the more successful films of recent that combine. CGI and practical effects are probably going to win with, you know, with both, uh, both demographics. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, but so let me ask you this, um, rewatching the movie now, and you've seen it many, many times, oh, yeah. many, many, many times, oh, yeah. I'm sure. But rewatching it here in the last 24 hours, like I did, was there, is there, was there any new takeaways for you? Was there, um, uh, or was it just kind of you know revisiting those those because there's some, some ter- really terrific scenes in the movie. First and foremost, the opening sequence with the dog running across the snow. That dog was the best the helicopter. Actor. That dog was the best actor. Now, he was the best. <laughs> he was it was incre- incredible yes. dog acting going on by by the dog in the movie. But the movie opens with this mystery where the dog is running across the snow and these Norwegians are in a helicopter and they're shooting at him and chasing him. And then they come upon the research uh, outpost. Yeah. And the dog runs over to one of the guys in uh, in uh, in McCready's group 
And then the, you know, the Norwegians come out and one of them, you know, he's shooting at the dog and he's, he's yelling at him in, in his native tongue and saying, hey, get away from that's not a dog. That's not a dog. Get away from it. And he starts shooting and he ends up shooting. I believe it's um, Peter Maloney's character, yeah. Bennings. Oh. He shoots him in the leg. And then, and then you know, uh, <laughs> Gary, you know, breaks the window and shoots, shoots you know, the Swede. And then the you know the helicopter blows up, and then they're dead, and so now we're left with as an audience and as part of the group in the outpost with this mystery of why are they shooting at this goddamn dog? Why are they chasing this dog? And we don't know, and they don't know. And then later on, like Adrian was saying, as far as the dog's acting, later on we see the dog like sitting under the table, and the dog is very clearly like Just, in tune with what's going on in the room. Yes, like looking and, and like, like, okay. like focus like a human would be like, yes. what's going on? Yes. Y'all go check that out? Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, just opening the film with this mystery um, and not clearly, even though Kurt, you know, Kurt Russell is by far the, you know, the, the best looking guy in, in the cast, <laughs> uh, but but not not absolutely telling you that he's going to be the hero at the end. Right. Exactly. You know, like he kind of rises it, out of you know, the ranks. It was, it was, yeah. It was similar to, although I think Alien does a better job, but similar to Alien where we don't have any idea that Ripley is ultimately going to be the, the last person standing and is, is going to be our hero mm -hmm. uh, until we get to, you know, into the second and third act of, of the movie. But in this one, the first thing we see is Kurt Russell with his full beard that he spent months growing and his 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 dark chocolate locks, you yeah, know, all, you know, ah. yeah, yeah, exactly, you know. Um, so there is some indication that, you know, e either we're supposed to find him to be the hero or we're supposed to have a boner for him because he's so good looking. So. <laughs> but you know what, what was interesting, man, about that first scene, and this was pro this probably wasn't intentional on Carpenter's part, but it, it kind of mm -hmm. is a it kind of is a callback to Assault of Precinct 13, the, the original one, where the mm -hmm. events are set off by this stranger running into the police station. You know, and so the, okay. the people in the police okay. station have to be like, where did this stranger come from? Now that he's within our ranks, we kind of have to take care of him. But unbeknownst to them, there's this gang trying to hunt him down, you know, and the stranger doesn't mm -hmm. say anything, you know. So now they're being accosted by mm -hmm. this force from outside, whereas here in the thing, the stranger that they've led into the camp in the form of this dog, now the danger is coming from within, you know, mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. The takeaway, uh, quite a quite a few takeaways I got from this viewing, you know, on my part is just the the ever increasing note of dread and paranoia. I, I, it had been a few years since I had seen the thing, even though I had previously seen it mm -hmm. numerous times. But taking right. note of this time around, just like how much that 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 circle of paranoia just like closed in. And 
the performances of the uh, of the actors, you know, really selling that point very, very well. You know, as time went on, they started mm-hmm. snapping, snapping at each other, like like just like really barking at each other. You know, who can we trust? Yeah, I don't trust you. No, don't you go nowhere, man. Sit right here. I saw this piece of clothing and, you know, in, in his laundry basket or whatever, you know. And it's just right. like they, they they really nailed that, you know. It's almost like a like a Ten Little Indians. I don't know if that's PC to say nowadays, but it's like a version mm-hmm. of that as they start getting picked off one by one by one, you know, on a couple mm-hmm. of occasions by each other, you know. what I'm saying by an action right. of one of themselves, you know, as opposed to you know the um, actions of this creature, you know. And so mm-hmm. yeah, just that, just that the note perfect feeling of dread that just permeates throughout the film to the very last frame just dark yeah but it should be and and to your and to your point man about the uh the paranoia you know i mean it doesn't help if these guys are isolated you know in in antarctica and they don't really have any of the modern conveniences other than a little music and some videos and uh you know they can smoke weed and they can drink you know, but they're there to, to essentially do a job, but they are hundreds of miles from nowhere and it gets 40 below zero, you know, once the sun goes down. So, you know, they have very limited amount of time to be out in the daylight and in the sunlight. And that can fuck with your brain and really, mm. you know, fuck with your mental health on top of that. But um, but the other thing, too, is, is like as they start to determine that, a, you know, and very early on, which I think this this is also too, like something that goes against the the template of something like Jaws, where Jaws, you didn't see the shark for almost two-thirds of the film before you really see the shark. It's just implied in the music. And that was because the practical effects were not working for the shark. So they ultimately said, hey, let's say less. Let's let's less is more. You know, let's use the the forebodingness of the of the soundtrack. And the uh, the obvious deaths of the the girl swimmer and the ca- child and everything else to set us up for when we ultimately do see the shark in this movie. Carpenter, as the director, gives us a full on alien transformation. What the fuck moment within 15 minutes of the film? Yes, the dog the dog is put in the, uh, Clark played by a uh, Richard Masur. Yeah. Uh, puts the dog in the kennel with the other dogs, and the other dogs are like, Mm-mm, "No, mm-mm, no, 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 no." And then, and then, when, the, and then when the dogs started transforming, <laughs> it was like the dogs were in jail. Like, hey, go! The dogs like, go! Hey, 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 yo, hey, hey! hey. hey. <laughs> I mean, they were biting the chain. Come get your boy! Hey, yo! Yeah, yo! <laughs> Come get your boy! He's Come tripping. get your boy! He's tripping, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and it's also kind of a callback to Assault on Precinct 13. Mm. You know, where the prisoners are like, hey, let me out of here, man. Yo, yeah. Let me out of here. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where they're like, yo, hey, what's up, man? <laughs> so, but, you know, once, so you get that transformation. And even with that, even though they go, uh, I think it was Benning's character who says, uh, you know, hey, Mac, I want you to go get the blowtorch. He tells Childs that. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Benning's, go get Childs. What is this? What's, the kind of- What's going on? What's the kind of- hey, Palmer, what is it? I don't know. Wait, Childs. Mac, 
Mac wants the flamethrower. Mac wants the what? That's what he said. Now move. Damn it. And Chow says, get what? And he says, the blowtorch. You got to get down here. And Chow's gets down there. He sees the thing transforming. And he's almost like, can't pull the trigger because he's so stunned. Yeah. And they're like, burn it. Burn it. <laughs> but even after all of that, Child still comes back. Childs still comes, played by Keith David, mm. still comes back later on and says, oh, man, I just can't believe this voodoo bullshit. You know, once Blair starts telling them, hey, look, this is an infected. This dog was infected. This carcass we found is, is infected. This is not of this world. This is some alien shit. And, he, you know, he doesn't want to believe it. And then slowly but surely, um, you know, once, you know, a couple of them start getting picked off, like you said, then all of a sudden they start to believe and then they start. That's when the whole, you know, one little, two little, three little Indians begins. And they, you know, and they all start kind of turning on one another, Yeah, which is a, which is a great trope, you know, uh, you know, to use not a trope, really. But it's a great device to use when you're shooting in one place and, you know, and it's a bunch of characters and, you know, and that sort of thing. But anyway, just fantastic. But the other scenes. To me, and it's it's one of those, you know, this is a very rewatchable film. Oh, yeah. But the, the scene where the one guy, uh, I think that's uh, uh, Norris. Mm -hmm. The character of Norris is, uh, he's on the table. I guess he had a heart attack or something. Yes. Oh. And they get the defibrillator. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, Copper, the doctor, is trying to defibrillate his chest. And his chest opens up like a mouth with teeth. And bites uh, Copper's arms off, and he pulls back bloody stumps. Ah, ah, ah. Oh man! It was like, and then Norris's head stretches. Yes, falls off the edge of the table, breaks apart from the body, sprouts legs like a damn crab, and runs off. But the crazy thing too is, is that they come in there with the blowtorch and you know burn the body, and they and as they're you know putting the fire extinguishers on it. They, uh, Carpenter has a couple of shots, you know, showing like the head has sprouted a tentacle and pulled itself mm -hmm. away slowly. They think they got it, but the head is like creeping away. Then it sprouts the mm -hmm. legs, and that's when um uh what is it? What is it? When not nah, not windows? The, the the stoner guy. He looks back and it's like you got to be fucking kidding. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, is that Fuchs? Was it Fuchs? Nah, Fuchs was the one with the glasses. I said the 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 stoner guy. I forget what I forget what his character's name was. And then McCready turns around okay. and blasts it with the flamethrower. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, man. Mm. But just 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 like incredible scenes when Bennings is in mid transformation as he's been assimilated and he runs out with that crazy bloody clawed stumpy hand and he falls in the snow and they all surround him. And then it almost becomes like like a Salem witch trial where, you know, McCready dump, pushes the fuel over and just sets him on fire. And then they realize, OK, you, you know, that the cells can still be alive after you've set, you burn something. So you've got to you got to like it's just crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. But um, a couple of things that stood out to me that I really, really enjoyed um, was, again, the opening sequence as far as the mystery, the whole creepy dread vibe that you talked about. There are points where uh, where uh, Cundy and Carpenter, mm. you know, they frame the actors and, you know, they're, you know, they're staged so that, you you know, they're having discussions and they're moving and transitioning from one place to the next yeah. uh, to move the, uh, the story forward. And then there are times where the camera becomes this eerie POV where it follows an actor from one room to the next mm -hmm. 
or it, or it looks down a hallway by itself, but it's almost kind of floating. It's not like a still steady shot. It's like a floating kind of a vibe. So it's almost like, okay, it's, are we supposed to be in the POV of the creature? We don't mm. know. But it just adds like a third, you know, because this whole movie is centered on uh, like the themes of paranoia and isolation, but also like fear of a, an unknown other. Yeah. Uh, and 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 fear of infection, fear of of disease too. So anyway, it's just some of that was just was really great. And then the the um, uh, the ominous uh, fade to black transitions at times. Yes, and fade fade to white too. Like when they're outside and mm-hmm. almost like chapter mm-hmm. breaks. It's like okay, let's get ready to take yeah. this thing back to base. Yeah. Fade out, fade to white. Next scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't do it all the time, but he did it effectively in places where it was supposed to like. Maybe you're supposed to kind of take a breath there instead of him trying to launch you back into the action or back into the next scene. He wanted the audience to kind of take a breath and kind of breathe. You know, you see Blair. One of them was on Blair's face when he's looking at the uh, that bullshit uh, computer sim animation or whatever. <laughs> it looked like, <laughs> sir, it looked like some old Space Invaders, a Galaga, a Pong or something. I mean, just absolutely a joke by comparison today, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, but he realizes, okay, this is what the alien cell is doing. It's actually, you know, taking over the human cell and it absorbs it and it takes it over and then imitates it. And then he has a look on his face like, man, this, cause he's thinking, okay, if this, uh, projection is, is if this, if this, if this creature's DNA gets out of this campsite and gets into the world, the whole world will be infected within like months right you know within weeks at weeks or months or whatever so he realizes the uh the um you know the the weight of the situation and what and what can happen and what they have to ultimately end up doing but um what'd you think about man because we you talked a little bit about the cast this was really a a great cast lots of character actors that you would see you see in other yeah. things later on um Keith David as Childs. I think this was his second feature film. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, Kurt Russell, of course, was a, was a child actor in a bunch of Disney movies. Yeah, and he probably. I know we talked about it when we did Escape from New York. You know where you know Carpenter had to kind of talk the uh, uh, the studio into casting Russell as Snake Plissken because he had that Disney past. Right. It's like, oh, come on, man, the Disney guy? <laughs> so even probably for for this movie, it was probably the same thing, because Escape from New York came out the year before this. That's right. Mm-hmm. So it was probably still kind of like, eh, he's going to be, you know, the kind of devil-may-care, you know, uh, drunken kind of chess-playing, you know, uh, helicopter pilot, but he was fantastic. Yes. And uh, Wil- Wilford Brimley had been around for a while, who plays Blair. Yes. But... Richard Masseur we see in a lot of other things. Uh, David McLennan we see in a lot of other things. Richard Dysart. Um, David Moffat, I know I saw him in something else. I can't remember what it was, but I know I've seen him in something else. Kind of noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, T.K. Carter, and, uh, you've seen, seen him in numerous other roles as Nalls. No, wasn't he in DC Cab or something like that? Yes, yes, all or, those or, like <laughs> Police Academy, yeah, and, all those black uh, B movies. He was on Punky Brewster. He was in a lot of those yeah. movies. Yeah, yo. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, and as a matter of fact, I was doing some uh, some poking around online, and apparently, the stand-up comedian and actor Franklin Ajay mm. actually auditioned for the role of Nalls. Really? But yes, but. He ended up 
getting pissed off and making this speech chiding the filmmakers saying that the part was a stereotype what stereotype i never i, I didn't get that off of nonsense i, I, I don't know the way he talks you know hey man maybe maybe we get invaded by norway and he's roller skating and he's listening to stevie wonder but i i mean that wasn't no i mean it was he wasn't shucking and jiving right. he just was a brother from you know the you know in the seventies and eighties who was just doing his thing right exactly oh you boy know, I swear and, and you had a balance of that with the child's character who was yes you know you know more of a, a reliable member of the crew and and was uh you know was just you know just a dude probably wasn't even written as a, as a black character I'm but sure. but it's funny how <laughs> at that at that one scene where um 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 who who's who's the the older guy. Who had the uh, had the revolver? He put it down. He was like, maybe someone else should be in charge. And Childs reaches for it. Yeah, I think it should be me. And everybody's like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that was David Moffat's okay, character, character okay. Gary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> El Capitan. <laughs> yeah. He was like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh no, bro. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> but uh. Oh. But also, um, the character Thomas Waits played Windows. Windows. You know, with the, with the reflective glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I didn't, I didn't realize this, again, just doing some poking around, mm-hmm. but Adrian Barbeau, who was uh, Carpenter's then-wife, was the voice of the chess compu- playing computer. See, Carpenter loves to do that. He loves to sneak in. He does. Yeah, yo. <laughs> he, he did it in Escape yeah. from New York with Jamie Lee Curtis as the, as the female voice of the computer. Yeah. <laughs> Dang, so yeah, that's okay. that is something else. And then you mentioned uh, Rob Bottin earlier, as far as the special effects goes, and we can't can't not mention oh, uh, the late great Stan Winston. Mm. You know who uh, you know provided makeup effects and whatnot. He worked on this film too, and this is right before Terminator, I think. Oh yes, mm. maybe just Couple before kind of yeah. the Terminator. Uh, yeah, so uh, he was he was dope as well. But mm. <clears throat> the um, man, this movie. Um, the critics like hated it. Yeah. When it came out, I mean, they just—I mean, they—they—they they, they ran over it two, three times with the car. They backed over that mug <laughs> and then came back over it. Came and went over it again. It's like okay. I mean, they hated it. And Carpenter has said, you know, and and rightfully so. This movie is body horror, which is something that hadn't been mm. really done in this effective a way in a long time. There are some, you know, kind of 80s, kind of schlocky moments in there as well. I'll, I'll give it that. Yeah, yeah. But I was going to say but, something like, you know, think of, think of the time it was released as well. I mean, you, you were talking about body horror. Probably the things that preceded mm-hmm. it immediately before this. And I think Rob Bottin may have been involved in one of those movies. It's like American Werewolf in London. You know, with the transformation where David Naughton turns mm-hmm. into the werewolf and you can actually see the transformation right. and everything, you know. Right. And then mm-hmm. I think there was another one after that because there was like a whole spate of like werewolf movies that came out after that showing the big thing was like, here's the transformation of the werewolf from being human. You know, like like that. So you have the. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. American Werewolf in London. You have the Howling. The Howling, yes. Mm hmm. Yeah, and uh, and there's probably one more that we're not thinking about, but yeah. Yeah, so apart from that, body horror was like this new kind of subgenre of horror 
that was starting to be explored. Mm-hmm. And I think just because it was kind of the, the newness of that, people don't know how to react when they're presented with something like that a lot of times. So mm-hmm. the reaction is to be doubting of it and just say, I don't, I don't know what this quite I don't quite know what this is, so I'm going to be kind of dismissive of it until some other people, you know what I'm saying, jump on board. But right. For right now, it's not working for me. And the other thing, too, is, is that consider the year that it was released, 1982. That's the year of E.T. That's all these mm-hmm. other movies outside of just the horror genre, too, that were just like right. taking up all of these awards, you know what I'm saying, while science fiction movies... Like, you know, um, The Thing and even Blade Runner, they're getting canned by critics. You know what I'm saying? And they're like, man, well, we have all of these other like feel good movies like E.T. and Gandhi and all this stuff like that. But mm-hmm. now we have like these dark movies. Eh, that's not quite the season right. for them. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and this movie, you know, again, it looks gratuitous in terms of the special effects and how wild they are. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to put people off for sure. But at the same time, and, and you know, Carpenter himself tends to be kind of a, a subversive filmmaker. Oh, yeah. You know, he's he kind of wants you to kind of wiggle in your seat a little bit and be a little uncomfortable <laughs> uh, with what's going on. And then, like you said, you know, you've got uh, E.T., and even before that, with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, mm-hmm. both from Steven Spielberg, which shows nice aliens. Yeah, cuddly. Oh, friendly yeah. aliens. You know, <laughs> aliens who are cuddly and who, 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 you know, who look like, you know, benign children without, you know, genitalia, you know, walking around. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then Carpenter's like, no, no, no. These motherfuckers will infect you and eat you alive and consume you, subsume yes. you, you know. And... So, so yeah, so I, I get that, but, you know, of course, later on with VHS and with cable and, and DVD, eventual DVD and Blu-ray, um, now it's considered, you know, the thing is considered a cult classic right. and definitely found its audience and, and is, is esteemed as one of the great blendings of science fiction and horror, um, you know, that, you know, that we have as far as, uh, modern cinema is concerned, mm. but, um, I did want to mention one other thing too. I was thinking about was the um, this whole idea of the, the fear of being infected by the alien. So this comes out in 1982, which was really the year that AIDS mm-hmm. kind of really starts to reach the mainstream in terms of newspapers and news. Right. I forget what year it is that Ronald Reagan actually says the word AIDS in one of his presidential addresses, mm-hmm. but it was around this time. Yeah. It was around this time. And so everyone is afraid of, you know, the, the you know, this gay cancer and uh, and OK, now straight people can get it through blood transfusions. And OK, now straight people can get it if they have unprotected sex with someone who has it. And it is a death sentence. So you have that going on. And then also, as far as the paranoia, this is 1982. Uh, the Cold War is five or six years, maybe seven or eight years from ending. Right. So there is still fear of nuclear war and the Soviet Union and us having to go into, you know, what could essentially be, you know, uh, 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 a third world world war. So everybody was a little bit on edge anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up um, 82 being like the um, the beginnings of like the AIDS epidemic and all of the, you know, some, you know, 
what, what, what we found out now to be somewhat misinformation about the disease itself, you know, as people right. were just afraid of everything. But consider this, too. I don't think this was an intentional um, subtext to the movie, but there are no females in the camp as opposed to like right. the original. There were a couple of females right. in the camp, but I think right. here right. there are no females and it works for the better. You know what I'm saying? Here's a group of guys, mm-hmm. a group of men that are just like, you know, they, they have to deal with themselves and this growing fear and this growing danger or whatnot. And I think it had there been a type of um, um, feminine energy there, so to speak, it kind of would have thrown that off just a bit. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, yeah. So you kind of needed that. But that's very adroit that you that you mentioned the fact about, you know, this being released at like right at the um, at the um, beginnings of the AIDS epidemic. That, that's that's a very noteworthy um, observation. Well, it's kind of it's not dissimilar from like when we were talking about something else before and you were pointing out that this, you know, the movie we were discussing, I forget which one mm. was post Watergate. And so there was a distrust of the government. There was a distrust of political leadership. Oh, yeah. And. And you were talking about how that had an effect on, you know, the uh, the filmmaking mm-hmm. and the filmmakers and, you know, the kind the attitude of the country, you know, for uh, probably for the more the left or left leaning or the progressive sides. You know, it was that's that's kind of what it was. Yeah. And and similarly with, with this, it's like, OK, um, anyway, just an interesting an interesting point. But um, there was something else I was going to mention. Um, oh, so. And I guess I never paid attention in the past until more recent watches of this movie, probably, you know, two or three years ago and certainly again in the last 24 hours. Mm-hmm. But the the kind of nihilistic ending with uh, yeah. with Childs and, and McCready, you know, sitting around the fire and they're, they're wait, you know, the sun's going down and it's already down at that point. Yeah. And it's going to be 40 below zero. And essentially they're going to freeze to death. Yeah, they're going to die. No, no doubt. No two ways yeah, about it. They're going to die. But they know that, hey, I could be infected or you could be infected. So we can't let again, we can't let this creature's DNA get off of this out of this outpost and get to the free world. So they kind of sacrifice themselves in a way. I didn't really catch that in my earlier viewings of it, but it was in more recent years. Where I realized, oh, OK, this is kind of like a like an anti-happy ending, but a happy ending somewhat to, to some degree. You know what I mean? Kind of, yeah. And in fact, uh, McCready says that like a couple of scenes before where um, himself, Nalls, and I forget who the last guy was. Uh, it was those three going through the base and they're saying, we're not going to make it out. Of, McCready says clearly, we're not going to make it out of here alive. So we have to bring this base down around us. So it doesn't have anywhere to hide in here. And that's where they start going through, throwing the dynamite and just destroying the base as they go. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's towards that mm-hmm. final ending where Nalls gets picked off um, and the other guy gets picked off by uh, Blair, you know, who comes out mm-hmm. and puts the hand on him and just chokes him, you know, just whatever he does. Right. And then, right. then he turns into that final large version of the creature. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I liked how it wasn't some type of crazy standoff by McCready and this monster. Like, McCready had one more pack of dynamite left. And he was like, you know what? Fuck you! And lights it mm-hmm. and blows it up. Had that been made today, it would have been some type of crazy standoff. And you know that 
the, the vantage point would have been from behind McCready as he looks at this creature and be kind of ogle the CGI <laughs> of, look at how magnificent this team worked for months to make this creature. And we see every orifice and everything. And it's just like, no, no, no. Kill it. We're done. And that's what he does. Yeah. And Child shows up and he's just like, man, we're, no, nah, we'll just have to wait and see. And just fades to black. And I like yeah. that. I like yeah, that man. direct just ending as opposed to like being drawn out. Not a lot of dialogue. Right. The dialogue that is there serves the ending, serves the characters, and we're done. Yeah. 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 Fantastic, man. Fantastic. And Keith David, <clears throat> as the character of Childs, <clears throat> he... um. Again, this was his second feature film. He had done more theater work prior to, uh, to uh, starting his work in, uh, in movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said that he worked with one of the other more seasoned film actors on set mm-hmm. where they would tell him, hey, look, <clears throat> pull back. Mm-hmm. You know, pull back. <clears throat> use your body more. Use your voice and project less. The camera can get close. The camera's going to capture you. Yeah. Um, make your performance smaller in places. So when you go big... You know, like, you know, I don't believe it's voodoo bullshit. You know, when you go big, it matters. But, you know, they had, and so he, he they were saying that he he kind of learned to kind of, you know, pull that back a little bit. Mm. And Keith David is just one of my favorite uh, character actors. Oh, he's great. Uh, character actors, voice actors. He's just fantastic. And I had a chance to meet him in person one time. Really? Uh, here in Atlanta, in Atlanta, very, very briefly. Okay. Um, and, I, and I chased him out the store into the parking lot. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed to say that. <laughs> Dang. Uh, but um, but I was going to mention one other thing too. So, or two other things. So the movie is a remake of the 1951, The Thing from Another World. Correct. Yes. That was an adaptation of a novella called "Who Goes There" by James Campbell, mm-hmm. which was published in 1938. Okay. And some of the differences are in the novella; they're very similar. Like that's really what what Carpenter. And his collaborators drew from was the novella, the creepiness, ah. the isolation, the eeriness, the, you know, the, the whole thing of they're picking us off one at a time. That was in the novella. Although in the novella, there were 37 characters in the room. Dang. <laughs> and they said, OK, look, we can't shoot 37 different people in the room. So they whittled it down to a dozen or so. Yeah. Uh, for the 1982 film. But uh, but a lot of the stuff is in there. A lot of the science is in there in terms of how they determine who's who's an alien assimilation who's not and a lot of it is there and also too apparently uh there is a short story a series of short stories called at the mountain of madness by hp lovecraft Mm, okay that is a similar story that apparently campbell probably bid his story from about some you know some scholars and some archaeologists in antarctica and they discover some prehistoric life that's been preserved and then it comes back alive and then, you know, they got to, you know, they got to figure it out or whatever. I didn't, I didn't read it, of course, because it's H.P. Lovecraft and fuck him forever. Yes, of course. But, <laughs> but interesting that, again, we talk about how it's cool that something is adapted. Things are adapted from literature and then they get turned into television shows and they get turned into films and, and comic books and whatnot. And there's that 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 lineage there between, you know, from the original novella all the way to. You know the uh, this 1982 uh, uh, feature film, mm. but um, yeah. So anyway, just cool. 
the last thing I was going to say, man, is, is there is a movie called Life that came out in 2017 that I watched. Okay. Um, stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Rebecca Ferguson, uh, Ryan Reynolds, and it's a small ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like The Thing in a way, but it's in space. Of course it is, but go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. But but it's actually a really it's actually pretty good. Like I started watching, I was like, okay, okay. And then as I watched, okay, this is actually really good. Mm-hmm. Where they're in like a space station, and they encounter this kind of multi-celled alien life, like outside the ship or whatever, and they're trying to capture it and keep it in uh in and they, they capture it. They so one of them goes out and he captures it and they keep it in this like this tube in a lab and they're looking at it. And they're working on it. And then the thing starts to multicellular starts starts to grow and starts to think and start, turns on the guy who's been working with it and kills him. It breaks his wrist. He's got these, he puts his hands inside these mechanical gloves yeah, so that okay. he doesn't touch the thing. And it grabs the gloves and breaks his wrist and, and kills him. Wow. And then it kills Ryan Reynolds. Oh and then it God. kills Rebecca Ferguson. And then it kills, you know, two other people. And... The way the movie ends, and I'm going to spoil it Go ahead. because it's still worth watching, even though I'm going to spoil it. Um, they, uh, Ryan Reynolds and I believe it's Rebecca Ferguson, get into a pod once they get close enough to the Earth, and they shoot out of the ship, blow the ship up, and they shoot out of the ship trying to blow the alien life force up. And it's it's and it's not like a creature per se; it's just more like like a blob. Mm-hmm. And so when they get to Earth, they land in the ocean because, you know, all space capsules always land in the water. I don't know why that is. <laughs> they have to. And so, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the army and all of them are coming to, you know, hey, they, you know, they, they're back, you know. And so they're coming to open the ship. And you look inside the portal window of the, of the, of the pod mm-hmm. and the alien is in there with them. And Ryan Reynolds is saying, don't open it up. Don't open it up. Don't open it up. Because... Just like in the thing, he knows once that once they get they get gets into the world, it's done. See, but it's actually a really good movie. It's on Hulu if you if anybody wants to watch it. See that? See that? That sounds like an old EC comic, yo. That's how it twists into the last yes. cut of an old EC comic. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yo. And then, yes, yo. Except, except his word balloon would have been like in parentheses, gasp, choke. <laughs> <laughs> That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.